Hey, let me pray again uh, just briefly before we get into the Scriptures. Father, we acknowledge that all truth belongs to You, that, Lord Jesus, in Your person, You are truth, that it's impossible, Lord, to come to a, a real grasp of what is ultimately true without coming to You. And we ask that as we look in Your Word this morning, You would reveal more of Yourself to us in an engaging way that changes us that compels us to live differently because of seeing You fresh, Lord, or, or embracing truth in a way we hadn't before. But Father, don't let us hear words of truth and simply neglect them. But would You arrest us where we're at? I trust that You'll speak to each of us in those ways each one of us needs to hear from You this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, your teaching uh, study sheet there... Uh, let me just give a, a brief typo correction there. Under point one, it says verse 17. That should be verse 15. Get that out of the way. Um, Jesus, as He approached the end of His life on earth, you see this in the Gospels, He ends up having these discussions with His disciples about being gone and about His return and the implications that held for his disciples, that would include us down to this day, in his absence. And so he tells a number of parables. And your study sheet shows Matthew 24. There's another one in Matthew... Excuse me, your study sheet shows Matthew 25. There's another one in Matthew 24. There's one in Luke 12, one in Luke 19, one in Mark 13. I'm not going to go through those this morning. These all essentially make the same point. In each story, in each parable the master, the one in charge, is leaving for a period of time. It's unspecified. And he leaves someone in charge in his absence, a servant. And the servants, depending on the parable, they either are in charge of the master's finances or they're in charge of the master's household. They're to take care of the rest of the servants or they're to invest his funds. And the point is always the same, twofold sort of, the master will return at an unspecified time. You don't know when he's coming back. And he's going to require of you sort of an accounting for what you did with what he entrusted you. Whether it's the finances, it's the care of the other servants. So the master's gone. There's going to be a return. We don't know when. We've been entrusted with something. We're going to give an account when he returns. Same same major point in all the parables, whatever they are. You see Paul pick up exactly these same themes in 2 Thessalonians 2, the passage will be in this morning. And if we read that back into Jesus' parables, we could say this, that the thing the Master was entrusting to those servants was truth. It was moral certainty. It was truth in the ultimate or highest sense. And Paul speaks that to us in this passage this morning and says basically, like those servants, we've been entrusted with something. We've been given something. Something has been handed down to us. And we're supposed to be responsible with this trust, with truth, until that unspecified time that Jesus returns and we'll give an account. So we're in 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning. We'll jump right in here. This is verses 15 through 17. Paul there says, Therefore, brothers, 
And the therefore means in light of being chosen by God, this is the verses directly preceding, through the Holy Spirit's work and the truth, we're assured of our future glorious end in Christ's presence. Paul says, in light of all that, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. That first point from verse 15, Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught either by our message or by our letter. You remember from Acts and 1 Thessalonians that when Paul went to that city, that Greek city of Thessalonica, there was instant persecution. Folks believed their church was formed. The Jews from other cities had followed Paul and they brought instant persecution with them. And so these believers, they just come to Christ and they're instantly in the fire. And in order to alleviate their suffering and persecution, Paul leaves because he was sort of the magnet, the primary one, that was attracting this persecution. So he leaves, but he's concerned about them. So he's written them a letter, he sent Timothy back, he's got a second letter here. And basically, he's concerned, guys, are you holding on to what you were given? You know, don't flag, don't fall down here. I know things are difficult, but hold on to what you were given. He says there in verse 15, stand firm or stand fast. This means to persevere right where you're at in the truth of the things we, speaking specifically of himself, what he'd spoken earlier, we taught you. Stand fast, persevere. He also says, hold on. And that means with strength. You know, if I try and take a toy from a child who really wants that toy, that child is holding on to that toy. Well, that's the thought here. It's not just that I'm holding it in an open hand. I'm grasping it firmly. No one is going to take that from me. And that's what Paul says to them. Guys, I know it's difficult. I'm not there to help you in person the way I'd like to be. And this is what you've got to do. You've got to stand firm and you've got to hold on. Stand firm and hold on. And he says specifically, if you notice this, to the truth we taught you, to the traditions we passed on. So if you look back in chapter 2, if you've got your Bible there, he'd said earlier at the beginning of this chapter, don't be upset in mind. Don't be troubled either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it's from us. Don't let anyone deceive you. We don't know what the influence was. The text is not clear. But someone had come in behind Paul and had tried and changed what he had told the Thessalonians. And that's why they're disturbed. You know, what do you mean about the, uh, the day of the Lord, Paul, and God's wrath? And I thought we were going to be delivered, and now we've heard something else, and we're confused. And so Paul says to them, you're to hold on and stand fast in the things we told you. We as in opposition to anyone else that came behind us. And it doesn't matter how they communicated with you, and it doesn't matter if they used my name. If it's in conflict with what we told you when we were there with you, reject it. It's not the truth. It's not what you're to stand firm in. You see this same attitude by Paul in Galatians 1. 
he wrote to the church at Galatia, and he said there, uh, if I tell you something today that contradicts what I told you before, if an angel comes to you, literally, if an angel appears in your midst, and communicates to you a message about Christ that contradicts what I've already told you, he says, do not believe it. It's not true. Even if I come back and change my message, don't believe me. I'm out of my mind. What I already told you, that was the truth. In Galatians, it's very specific about the message of the gospel. But Paul's saying the same things here. Someone else has come in and they've modified what Paul said. And it's left these guys in confusion. Paul says, don't buy it. What we told you when we were there with you, that's the truth. That's what you stand firm in. And that's what you hold on to. Hold on to the tradition. Sometimes we use tradition in a a way that's really vague and a tradition may be meaningful or not meaningful. Uh, celebrating Thanksgiving for us may be a tradition, but if you missed a year, what, what difference would it make? You know, maybe none. Tradition for Paul, though, is very closer to the thought of teaching. Tradition carries the thought of Paul had personally given them something, like an inheritance. That's what tr- tradition means here. It's, it's not something based on a practice long ago that we don't know the value or the meaning of. Tradition here is something that I gave you or that one generation gave to another. It was something that was to be valuable and was to be held on to. So Paul says that truth that I spoke to you, the traditions I received and I personally gave to you, that's what you're holding on to. That's what you're standing fast in. Now, this is a huge issue for Paul. You know, as a parent, let's say as your children get a little older and you know that they're not going to be long in your house, for their sake, you really want them to buy into what you've been telling them all along. You don't want them to chuck those values, those ethics, those ultimate truths you've tried to pass on to them all along. And if you felt like they were getting confused in that stage of life, you try and come in and say, no, no, no. Go back to what we talked about when you were growing up. Go back to those things you knew with certainty and hold on to those. Well, Paul has that same concern, and other New Testament writers do as well. What we told you is of such ultimate truth, you can't afford to either change its meaning in your mind or let go of it. So in Paul's last letter that he wrote to Timothy, very similar thought, very similar wording. He says there in chapter 1, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching you've heard from me. Hold on to the sound teaching you heard from me. And also guard through the Holy Spirit that good thing entrusted to you. Uh, Hold on, same wording, guard. It's this thought that you've been given something of great value and you cannot afford to lose it. You've got to hold on to it. You've got to stand fast in it. Later in that same epistle in chapter 3, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And there he adds, you know those who taught you. You know, if uh, someone that knows you and loves you tells you something you're more likely to believe that it's true especially if you think this is a person of character proven character they're honest they have integrity you'd be much more likely because you know them 
to value what they tell you. And that's what Paul says here. Now, Paul says, you know me. And, of course, Timothy had lived with him. Uh, Paul had no secrets from Timothy. Timothy knew Paul. But, you know, also back in Timothy's early days, Timothy knew his mother and his grandmother because Paul says the faith existed in them first. So he tells Timothy, remember the folks from whom you've received this content of truth, these traditions. You know them. They're trustworthy. I'm trustworthy. Don't choose to believe something that sounds better because some unknown, some untried, some untested voice comes into your life and says, this is the truth you should believe. Paul says, hold on to the truth you've had and you know the people who have given it to you. You know they're trustworthy. Jude carries the same thought. You know, at the end of the day, truth is all that matters. It's all that matters. If you know the truth, you have life forever. If you don't have the truth, you have death forever. Truth is all that matters at the end of the day. Jude, Jesus' half-brother, was going to sit down and write a letter. And he wanted to write about one thing. And for whatever reason, it's not really clear, the Spirit of God moves on Jude to change the letter he was going to write to something entirely different. And Jude says, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend. And this means to struggle over. This means combat, hand-to-hand combat. To contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Once for all faith. You know, Jesus, it says in Hebrews, died once for all. The just for the unjust. Jesus died for sins once for all. It's never repeated. Well, Jude takes that same thought and says, you guys have been given a body of truth that was once for all given. It's never modified. It's never added to. You can't improve on perfection. And so Jude says to the early church, listen, guys, same thing Peter says in his last letter. Jude says, you're going to have these guys and they're going to slip into your churches. And they're going to tell you things we didn't tell you. And they're going to distort the body of truth that has already been delivered once for all time to the church through the apostles and the New Testament writers. And so Jude and Peter say, don't listen to them, and this is what they'll look like. And the description in both letters is it's immoral men. Immoral, ungodly men. And it's on both counts. They're telling you something that doesn't line up with what you've already heard. Reject it. And also, why would anyone trust these guys? Look at their lives. Why would you trust them? In contrast to Paul or to the other apostles, guys of integrity, guys who laid down their lives for the truth content they were sharing with others. So Jude says exactly the same thing. The church has been given a body of truth contained in the pages of our Bible. Jude says it was once given. It's never changed. It's not amended. It's not edited. It's not improved on. And he says we are to struggle over that. Now, let me be quick to add, the struggle is primarily spiritual and verbal. When we're talking about struggling and fighting, in the imagery of fighting, we're talking about over truth. You know, for the most part, the early church did not take up swords against their opponents, their spiritual opponents. This is primarily a spiritual struggle, and it has to do with the truth. 
We want to win our enemies to Christ. We don't want to stab them through the heart with a sword. We want to win them to Christ. The struggle is over truth. That's the thing that matters at the end of the day. Last along this line, Ephesians 6.13. Paul's just talking about spiritual warfare. And his picture of a Christian being readily armed for the conflict at hand, for the struggle over truth, looks like a Roman soldier, a well-equipped Roman soldier of their day. They've got a helmet, they've got a shield, they've got a breastplate, a sword, they've got a belt around their waist so they don't, their legs are free to move, and they've got some sandals on their feet so that they can get around readily. And Paul says, with that, take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist. It's the same thought. We don't have to advance, in a sense, in the cause of truth. We have to stand in the truth. We don't create truth. We stand in what we've received. I think it was said of one of David's mighty men that the enemy was coming in and he finds himself in a lentil patch. And it just says he took his stand there in the middle of the patch and he defended it. And he struck the enemy down there in that patch. He said, I'm not giving up this ground. And that's the imagery Paul's giving us. That the ground for us is truth. And you cannot afford to move backwards out of the truth. You have to possess it. You have to stand in it. You have to embrace it to hold on to it. You can't move backward away from the truth. You've got to stand. Once you start moving back, you're in deep, deep trouble. So, we don't need today new truth. We don't need new revelation in the sense that we've got it in the pages of this Bible. God's not improved on that. You know, you read the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible... And God says there, don't add to the words of this book and don't take away from them. Theologians are divided. Does that only mean the book of Revelation? Does that mean the entirety of the Bible? Not entirely clear, but the warning is clear. If God has said it, don't add add to it. Don't take away from it. Now, in saying this, God's given us ultimate truth in the pages of our Bible. That doesn't mean that in the age of the Spirit, God doesn't speak to us. Let me differentiate this clearly. Just last week, again, read a story of a Muslim who'd had a dream. Jesus appears to him in a dream, and he becomes a Christian. He's saved. There's more of these stories just recently in the Muslim world. Which one of us hasn't prayed and said, God, we need your guidance? And we feel like God gives us a strong impression in our mind, or someone else says something to us specifically about that issue, or We open the pages of our Bible and the need that we've been praying about, it's addressed right there in front of us. God is still speaking, but He's not adding to the content of the Bible, that ultimate measure of truth. And that's what Paul's warning them about. That's what you've got to stand firm in. That's what you've got to hold on to. You know, back to that illustration of the parables, Jesus physically is in heaven. And we're like those servants. We've been trusted with this body of truth. And that's what we'll be held responsible for. And in His absence, our metal is proved. You know, when He comes back, we give an account. What did you do with what I gave you? What, what did you do with the truth? Martin Luther, who knew a thing or two about battling in the arena for truth, said this, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. You know, if everyone around you believes the same thing you do, there is no battle, except maybe in your own soul to to obey what you know is true. 
But it's when we're out in the world, it's when we're with folks who don't agree with us. Do we get embarrassed, by the way, in conversations with others? Do we get embarrassed that we're Christians? Or embarrassed that we believe the Bible is true? That embarrassment would be a sign that we're caving on the truth. See, if we're ashamed of what's true or our Savior, what we're really doing is we're backing away from the truth that we've been given. See, we can't afford to be ashamed. We have to know what's true and we have to be heart and soul committed to it, holding on to it, standing firm in it, holding that ground. That's got to be the place we live. Listen to what Spurgeon said along the same line. Like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. It is his destiny to be assaulted. Guys, when we're assaulted, this should be expected. You know, we live in the free West. And so if someone raises an eyebrow that we believe in creation or a young earth or a literal atonement or a real resurrection or a real virgin birth or whatever it is, they're like, really? You believe that kid story or whatever? You know, no, no. These are words of ultimate truth. I have no problem standing for them. And we're going to get assaulted on whatever it is we believe that's of value. The world around us is going to assault us. It's his destiny to be assaulted. It's his duty to attack, to stand in the truth, to hold up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Part of his life, he says, will be occupied with defensive warfare. He will have to defend earnestly the faith once delivered to the saints. He will have to resist the devil. He will have to stand against all his wiles and having done all, still to stand. Still to stand. I mean, it's interesting on one And we're not told, in a sense, to go out and assault and take something. We're told to stand in something. Now, we move forward as witnesses for Christ. We do take ground in the sense that we're bringing the gospel to folks who have not heard the gospel. We could see that as an offensive warfare. But the language here is about just holding what we've been given. Holding on to the truth we've been given. You know, in our own time, like Paul's time, the message of the gospel is always at stake. Is it really true that mankind is sinful? Is it really true that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? Is that really true? Are Jesus' claims really true? Are the gospel's claims really true? That's always up for grabs. That's always assaulted. And by the way, you know, in a culture that rejects absolute truth, you know where that goes. Um, totally apart let's say somebody grows up they live life they're going to school they're just in our culture just growing up let's say they've never heard the gospel but they grow up hearing that truth is simply true for me it might not be true for you your truth is your truth mine is mine no absolute truth when that person hears the gospel what foundation does the gospel have for being received because there's no truth there's no absolute truth see apart from everything else the whole War on the concept of truth, it undercuts the foundation to present the gospel to others, which is why it's so dangerous. There's got to be absolute truth. Somebody really lives, somebody really dies. That's absolute. So in a culture of relativism, part of presenting the truth is to say, no, there are things that are really true and there are things that are really not true. And every claim that says there's no absolute truth is itself an absolute claim. Of course there's absolute truth. The person saying there isn't is making an absolute claim. 
we've got to stand. You've got to come in ready to engage on these issues. But think too, in our day, over a billion people in this world believe a book called the Quran, which claims to be a later and a more perfect revelation from God. That's the claim of the Quran. Over a billion people in this world follow its teachings. It's another claim to truth that disagrees with the Bible. I have no problem saying up front and personal, it's false. It doesn't meet Paul's claim. It doesn't meet Jesus' claim. It doesn't line up with the Scriptures. But you know, we've also got something called, produced right here in America, the Book of Mormon. Another testimony of Jesus Christ contradicts the Scriptures. It's not another testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not the truth. We've got a standard and it doesn't measure up. And we need to be able to confront claims from the Quran or from the Book of Mormon just like we would the heresies early in the church. They're not true. You've got new Gospels. I don't know if you guys have read in the papers and magazines in the last 10 years or more, the Gospel of Thomas. Have you guys heard of the Gospel of Thomas? You know, it's not a new Gospel. The early church was aware of it and lots of other writings, and they said, this does not agree with the words of truth from the apostles. We reject it. And people today, see, because it disagrees with other New Testament teaching, they say, oh no, this belongs there. The early church saw it and said it's not truth. Have you guys read in the newspapers in the last week about the little, tiny, literally, tiny, tiny fragment of papyrus? Have you read this? that said Jesus has a wife. Did you read this? You know, it's all the stir. Was Dan Brown correct in his works of fiction? Is Dan Brown the best theologian on the earth? Jesus was really married and had children? The early church knew these claims too. And it's just, it's another thing that the truth needs to come in. We need to apply the truth to and say, it doesn't matter what the claim was. The early church heard all that too and they rejected it because it didn't measure up to the standard they'd received from the apostles and the New Testament writers. So Paul says, just like that master leaving on a journey and trusting something to his servants, Paul says Jesus has left us with this body of truth. We've got to stand firm in it. We've got to hold on to it. We've got to struggle over it struggle to make it our own, and struggle to keep it our own from those who would take it from us. Now, he said stand firm and hold on, and, and that's, that's kind of aggressive. That requires some energy, but he doesn't finish there. He basically says don't stand there, do something, and don't just defend, but engage. If you look down at verse 17, part of his prayer here is that God would strengthen you in every good work and word we're not just holding a defensive position according to Spurgeon's words but we're actually engaging the battle here now these Christians Paul's writing to they'd been in the heat of battle as soon as they believed they were persecuted so you read back in his first letter chapter one hey we recall your work of faith labor of love endurance of hope you're sticking with it guys you're doing it Later, verse 7 there, uh, the Lord's message rang out from you. Paul says the gospel was like a trumpet being blown in the clear morning air. It rang out. You guys, you've been doing the works. And the proclamation from your church, it's been loud and clear. 
And you know, if they were at all like me, I'm thinking if I've been in the heat of battle and I've been working hard and I've been faithful, I might feel like, you know what, I've earned a little break here. I'm going to not stand here for a little bit. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to take a break. I've earned a siesta or a little R&R or something. Other Scriptures talk, by the way, about taking breaks. This is not one of them. So to the Thessalonians in this time, Paul says, uh, no time for R&R. No time to sit on your laurels. You're standing and you've got to keep standing. I was reading uh, in my quiet times, this is probably a decade or more ago in Revelation and uh, letters to the churches. And I don't remember what my state of mind was at the time, uh, but I just felt like God just, if not spanked me, just totally got my attention. I'm reading to the letter, uh, the letter of the church at Sardis, and, and God there said, the, the one who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, says, I know your works. I know what you've been up to. I've seen your life. I've seen what you've been busy at. You've been working. I see that. And then he says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but really you're not. You're dead. And the thought here is they're not spiritually dead. They're asleep. The language here is right out of 1 Thessalonians 5, by the way. You're asleep. And he says there, be alert. That really means wake up. You're lying down. Wake up strengthen what remains, which is about to die. I have not found your works complete before my God. See, they're saying to themselves, I've been working. I've been doing it. And God, surely you know that I deserve a break now. So I'm not going to stand. I'm going to sit down. I might even lie down. I might even take, take a few Z's. I'll take a little nap here. Lord, and surely you know that's okay. And Jesus says, well, actually, it's not okay. I've seen your works. I know what you've done. But you're asleep. You've got to wake up. There's more work to do. I know your works and they're not finished. It was this same, very same verse that Brother Andrew used. He felt like God spoke to him that started uh, Open Doors uh, probably five decades ago. Strengthen the things that remain for him was the persecuted church behind the Iron Curtain. But I read this and I felt like, Lord, I'm doing the do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm memorizing Scripture. I'm discipling. I'm, 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 you know. The Lord was unimpressed. And I just knew. He says, no, no, you're not done. There's more to do. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't think you've, you've earned the right to leave the, the field of battle. No, no. You've got to stay in there. Ephesians 2.10 is an encouragement for me along that line. If Jesus says your works aren't complete, then that must mean there's a finish line. God knows when my works are done. And in Ephesians 2.10 there, Paul says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Wow. So God's prepared my good works for me. So that means he knows when they're done. God's prepared good works for us, and he knows when they're done. So it's not for us to decide I've stood long enough. It's for God to decide you've done everything I gave you to do, or you haven't. God's prepared those good works that we should walk in them. Listen, uh, every good work is not for all of us. 
you know, if you see someone else and, I don't know, uh, if they're serving in, say, some specific area of ministry, and you say, well, that's a good work, I should do that. And you see someone else doing some other good work, and you say, well, that's a good work, I should do that. And I should do that, and I should do that. That's not the case. Because God has put us together uniquely. Each of us has a very unique call on our life. We know different people. We're in different spheres of influence. God has different works for each of us to walk in. Part of praying about our good works is just, Lord, what is it you have set aside for me? Give me the eyes to see the things you want me to do. Those are the works God has prepared for us. Also, in the next chapter in 2 Thessalonians, because Paul knows where these guys have been, he says, guys, don't grow weary of doing good works. Don't grow weary. You know, weariness, I think, here is more a state of soul than it is that we've worn ourselves out. You know, if we don't keep ourselves encouraged, and Paul will talk about that here in just a second, if we don't keep ourselves encouraged, if we feel like it's all give and that we're not hearing from God and being encouraged ourselves, then we grow weary. But see, that's the fruit of not adequate focus on God himself and what he's providing for us and more of a focus on we're simply responsible to do without understanding that it's God that provides the ability and the strength to do those things in his strength, by his spirit. We'll talk about that here in just a second. In John 5, Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath and the Jews are ticked at him, right? Because he broke the Sabbath. But this is what he says. My father's working. And so I'm working with him. My dad's working, and I'm working with my dad. I mean, physically, Jesus isn't here side by side, but spiritually he is with his spirit. And so Jesus says, my model is, my dad is about these things. These are the works my dad's involved in, and I'm right there by his side doing the same thing he is. My father's working, and I'm working with him. And guys, if we have that mentality, it really does a lot as far as taking away the sense of uh, we're worn out, pity us, we're working hard and it's going nowhere. If we say no, my dad's with me and I'm with him. And this is what we're doing together. That changes the way we see it. Jesus says, my dad's working and I'm working. Paul says again in 2 Timothy, when he's writing to his uh, friend Timothy, who's a younger guy and who's easily discouraged. Do you remember that? That in the beginning of this last letter, Paul knows I'm going to die soon. I've made this huge investment of truth in Timothy. But you know what? He's easily discouraged. And it's hard for him to stand sometimes. And sometimes he doesn't want to hold on. He wants to take a break. And so Paul's writing this letter to fan the flame of Timothy's passion and ministry and calling and get him back in the game. So that when Paul's gone, Timothy's standing and holding on. And so one of the things he says to Tim is, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul didn't need to brag on himself. He's confident that Jesus would reward him for faithful service. So he didn't need to brag to Timothy. He's basically saying, Timothy, this is what I've done, and you can do the same thing. You can finish the race God's put before you. You can fight the good fight. You can faithfully cross your own finish line, just like I have. And that's what we can do too. Don't give up early. 
Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep, hold on to the faith, the truth that we've been given. If you say, what are good works? What, what are good works anyway? Is everything a good work? You know, or if we're busy, let me ask you this too. Is busyness, is busyness, does that mean something's good work? Do you guys find the same thing I do that is? Someone says to me, how are you doing? And I say, wow, you know, I'm really busy. You know, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, man, me, busy too. And, you know, that busy means I'm important. I've got, I've got a lot to do. I know a lot of people. I'm engaged here, man. I'm busy. You know, but I don't think that's what God has in mind. I don't think busyness is necessarily a measure of good works. I think as Christians, we're busy all over the place, but I'm afraid a lot of it has absolutely nothing to do with the good works God's called us to. You know, we're busy about all kinds of secondary and third level and fourth level things that will have no fruit in eternity. But boy, they seem important in the moment. And it takes a ruthless dedication to say what's really important. What are we really focusing on? What's, what's the fruit of what we're doing now? What will it be a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now? Will this have any meaning other than in the moment? We're busy. That doesn't mean anything about good works. Listen from Jesus in John six twenty eight. He had a group of Jews following him and they're hungry. See, because he fed them. He gave them their happy meal. So they follow him around the lake because they want another happy meal. And he says, guys, you're working too hard. Walking around this lake for food that perishes. So they say, okay, well, Jesus, so you tell me, what must we do to do God's works? What is God's work, Jesus? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on the one he sent. If we hear a message about good works, sort of an action, and we say, man, I'm going home and I'm getting busy. Say, well, that might not be the place to start. Because all of our good works start with faith, with belief. And ultimately, of course, belief in Jesus as the Savior, belief in the gospel. You know, don't work hard at all these other things, doesn't matter. The work that counts really is faith. You know, for the Christian, anything that's not of faith, produced from faith, the result of faith, it burns up. You know, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if we go home and just get busy and we're working hard and it's not born of faith, that we understand this is what God's called us to, it's not what Paul's talking about. It's not the works God has ordained for us to walk in. Those works are born out of faith, belief in Jesus and the gospel, but also a faith that we're responding to what Jesus has called us specifically to do. You see, in Matthew 5, 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, there was another... uh, way to reflect, is this a good work God's called us to? Jesus said there that the good works for Christians should reflect the glory of God, should point others to Christ. Are the good works that are part of my life, do they reflect God and His glory? That's a good measure. Or is it about me? Or is it about a church? Or is it about some something significantly less than God Himself. Good works honor, they bring glory to God Himself. That's a good marker. Uh, Later, here in the end of this same letter, chapter 3, Paul is all over these guys about working at their day jobs, about going to work. 
about an honest day's work and an honest day's pay. Because they got confused. Jesus is coming, I'm going to quit my day job. Sit on the hill. If I run out of food, I'm going to Alan's house and I'm eating a little beef off the range. And if Alan gives up, you know, I'll go to somebody else's house. Paul's like, nope. In fact, he spends the best part of the last part of this letter on telling Christians, go to work. Work. And make an income. This doesn't sound glamorous. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, faithfulness in a little thing is not a little thing. And guys, just to go to work, to be responsible, to provide for our own needs and the needs of our families, our friends, the church, to be able to give generously, that's not a small thing. Faithfulness in a small thing is not a small thing. That's a good work. Just bringing home the bacon. Just being responsible. Providing a valuable service or product to other people. That's a good work. That's something God sanctions and blesses. Our work is spiritual to God. That's part of what He's called us to do and to walk in. Giving, serving others. Missions. Short-term missions. Longer-term missions. Let me qualify that by saying sometimes missions are just glorified uh, vacations. That's not really what I'm talking about. This, is, by the way, is a big issue in the church today and uh, among Christians that have something to do with missions. It's, are these really meaningful for the people we're serving or are they meaningful for us as a vacay? So, but, but that's one of the ways that we might have a good work. Or preparing to do any of these things. You know, if you're a student, if you're going to school for a career... That's a good work. You say, I'm doing, I'm laying the foundation for my day, my day job in the future. That's a good work. That's a great work. If I'm a student going to seminary because I want to be able to invest in Christians with some depth in the scriptural languages and have a good foundation and background, that's a good work. The work itself and preparation for the work. One of the things I'd like you to do when you, you go home today is just ask that question, Lord, what are my good works? Maybe you know right now. Some of you do. But if you don't, Lord, what are those good works you've called me to? Paul also says good words. We're called to good works. We're called to good words as well. Primarily, the good word is the truth content of the Gospel. Paul's made that clear all along. You know, the truth that we, in and of ourselves, we're not what we should be. And there's a holy, righteous, just God who says you're not what you should be. And I've provided a way out for you. I've provided for your inadequacy, for your lack of holiness through my son's death and resurrection on your behalf. That's the ultimate truth that we need to be sharing with others. Just the gospel. You know, whether we say, if you died today, where would you go? What's your understanding of that? Or if we say, what do you make of the claims of Jesus Christ? That's an easy question. What do you make of Jesus' claims? You know, here's a guy in history who came and said he was God. Not many have done that. But then he dies on a cross. He's killed by people who know a little, little something about killing, Roman soldiers. And he's buried and he rises from the dead and he eats food. He's got a physical body. He says, stick your hand in the side if you want. And all these people see him. Well, then that's a, that's a different set of claims. It's a great question just to ask others. What do you make of the claims of Jesus? That's the ultimate truth. The good words we need to be sharing ultimately are the gospel. You know, some of you here are called, some of your good works are discipleship of other Christians. That can be because you're a parent 
It can also be because that's just the way God's wired you. He's gifted you to encourage and disciple others. Well, you need to know the words of truth. You need to know the content of the Scriptures if you're going to help other people grow spiritually in their faith. Good words for you can be, what has God said? Succinctly, what are some of those big themes in the Scripture that I need to let younger, maturing Christians know? What are those words of truth? You know, but in our own families, to our friends and to each other, we need to have words of truth, words of encouragement. We need to be able to challenge ourselves and each other. You know, what are, what are you doing there? The Bible says, you know, give no appearance of evil. What's going on? And you know where this leads to, of course, don't you? So if we're supposed to have words of truth, that means we need to know words of truth. So that probably means we need to maybe be hanging out in our Bibles. Maybe a little. Maybe memorizing or meditating or writing them down or studying them with each other, right? We've got to know our Bibles if we're going to have words of truth to share with others. So we are on mission. We're on assignment. We're commissioned in the ranks, in Jesus' ranks. We're to stand our ground. We're to hold on to the content of truth He's given us. And we're to proclaim through good works and good words, ultimately, the Lord Himself to the culture around us. Let me close by winding down with the third point on your study sheet, and it's this. If I'm going along and I'm working hard and I'm, and I'm staying faithful at it and I feel like God's telling me you've got to keep going, you've got to keep going, you've got to keep going indefinitely, I might feel discouraged. I might feel like, how long can I do this? But in between Paul's call to stand and hold on and the prayer for good works and good words, he says this in verse 16, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you for every good work and good word. To those, Paul says, who have been chosen for salvation, this is what they get. They get God's love. They're loved by God. Uh, You know, children can die, really, if they're not loved by a parent physically cared for, nurtured, they can die. Spiritually, we die apart from Christ. But here, Paul says, no, you've been loved by God. You have ultimate acceptance. Your God and Father rejoices over you. You have the ultimate acceptance, the ultimate love you already possess in Christ. God, your Father, loves you. He delights in you. He has good plans for you. You have God's love, Paul says. You have eternal encouragement. You know, the Greek word here is a a term that's often applied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and encourages us, strengthens us, helps us. Well, Paul says we have as believers eternal encouragement in Christ, by the Spirit. We have eternal encouragement. He says we have good hope by grace. You know, in the Bible, hope is not I hope something happens. Hope is it's going to happen. It just hasn't yet. It's an expectation, a confident expectation that God's going to do what he said. I have a confident expectation for the future and it's strength. And I love this strength. Have you guys ever seen uh, retaining walls? You know, in inspecting buildings, I used to look at retaining walls all the time. 
You know if a wall has too much pressure on it, it starts bulging. It can't stand against the forces of the earth outside. So you know what you put up against it? You put a buttress against it. And a buttress is this reinforcing member that helps the wall stay right where it's at. It's this strengthening influence on the wall that goes down into the earth. It's big and substantial. And usually you'll see several of them along a long wall. It's a buttress. That's what this word means, strength. Which is to say, when you and I feel like our strength's gone, God says, that's okay. Because I've got you. I've got your back. I'm the strength behind you that holds you up right where you are. You're not going to fall down. You might choose to sit down, but you can't be pushed down. And you can't be pushed over. Because God Himself is your buttress. Sounds like a good song from the Reformation, doesn't it? This is strength of God behind you. That's what holds us in place. Nothing can push us over. Nothing can defeat us. Paul says you've got God's strength as a buttress against you, holding you in that ground that He's told you to occupy. So, like the servants Jesus left, talked about in the parables, and trusted with the care of the household or the, the master's finances, and really better than that, We're our Father's children commissioned and trusted with the truth, words of truth, and told that in the battle between heaven and hell, we've got ground to stand in and truth to hold on to. We've got good works, meaningful works, and good words to share with those around us. And that's what He'll hold us accountable with when we see Him. And He's the one behind us saying, I've got your back, I'm holding you in place. No one can push you down. You don't have to have the strength because I've got it for you. That's the God that we serve. So when you're interacting with people, when we're in the world, we've got to remember, we've got ground to hold. And we've got a message to communicate. And we've got truth to share with ourselves, to remind ourselves of our family and our friends, and especially the gospel that never changes, never has changed the eternal gospel to share with the world that doesn't yet know Christ, doesn't know truth, and doesn't know life. That's something worth holding on to. Father God, would You you help us to see the riches that we already possess in Your Son? God, would You give us a fuller sense of the strength and the encouragement that we have in Christ? Father, would you give us a larger sense of appropriate responsibility for the works you've ordained that we walk in, for the words of truth you mean for us to share with others. Father, would you help us be like those servants to whom the Master can say, well done. Father, might you help us to be children that you can look at at the end of the workday and say, Junior, well done, I'm pleased, you've honored me. Jesus, would you help us to be a light to the nations around us? Would you help us to be a spark of life? Would you help us to stand firm and hold on to you? Amen.